those black uh, shopping bags are available in our lobby every single week. They're kind of hanging from a stand. We also have some more there at the Welcome Center desk over here in the lobby. And so you can grab those on any Sunday, take them sometime during the week, fill them. Um, you can even go to our website or to InAsMuch's website, and there's kind of an evolving list of what their greatest needs are at any point during the year if you want to be able to buy specifically for what's lacking over there. Then just bring it back to LCF, and we'll take care of getting it over to them. You can grab those any Sunday. They're always out there, always available, and you can bring it back to the office um, any day during the week, and we'll take care of getting it over to InAsMuch. That's a, a ministry that we love partnering with. Like, like she said, they serve 1,900 homes a year right here in the Northland. Those who um, don't have the means to do something that most of us consider very, very simple, which is going to the grocery store and getting food. So you can take part in that any week. Uh, one other announcement this morning, and that is at the end of 2020, we shared that our missions pastor, our previous missions pastor, Joe Stewart, was stepping off of our staff because he and his family were getting ready to launch out into the mission field, and that we were going to wait a little while to kind of see how the COVID uh, budget and finances and those kinds of things worked out while we figured out and uh, to see who a full-time missions pastor would be. And so I'm announcing this morning that we've hired that individual. He's going to start full-time on June 1st, so the Tuesday right after the Memorial Holiday weekend. He's been a part of our congregation for six years. He's been on the missions team for three years. He's spent time uh, overseas. He has a heart for our church, for our missionaries, and connecting our congregation to our missionaries, and a heart to really pastor and shepherd this congregation. And so that individual is Ben, Ben Wagner. He's standing over here. Um, he will be, yeah, you can applaud that. He'll be stepping into that role full-time on June 1st, and we are incredibly, incredibly excited about the way the Lord will use him in kind of the next season of missions and outreach here at LCF, but also, like I said, Ben has a heart for our congregation and for coming alongside our whole pastoral team and just shepherding and loving and caring for the entirety of our church. And so we look forward to the ways that God will use him to do that and use him to continue to lead us cross-culturally and here in our own community when it comes to sharing the gospel. And so um, if you know Ben, and this is awkward for him, I've done this every service, I would love it if people would take the opportunity to just let them know that you're excited, um, that he's coming on staff uh, he's going to be a fantastic addition for us. So June 1st, that's when, that's when Ben starts. Sound good? All right. Um, Luke chapter 8. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. We're going to finish Luke 8 this morning. Verses 40 to 56 are kind of the last uh, uh, scene or account there in Luke chapter 8. I, I heard David Platt describe Luke 8, the whole chapter this way, that Luke 8 describes the power of Jesus and his word over disaster, demons, disease, death, and all things destructive. We're down to the last of that, that Jesus is Lord and his word is transformative and powerful over all the destructive forces that exist in our world. We're going to see the end of that picture today. Before we read this, I want to give a quick reminder from something we saw back in Luke chapter 7. That was the last healing passage that we looked at. 
We've wanted to be intentional throughout this Luke series when we come up on these healing passages to talk directly about what we see there, what it means for the church today when we talk about healing, when we talk about the miraculous, we see Jesus doing those things, what does that actually mean for us today? And so we're going to continue that. But where we've come kind of in that discussion is that we began by talking about the reality of God's will. He is sovereign and what he wills absolutely comes to pass. Then in Luke chapter 7, we saw that the effective means when it comes to healing is God's power and his compassion. And that means this, God is sovereign and that which he wills, he has the power to bring about. He's also compassionate. So the cries of his people are compelling to him. We've seen that numerous times throughout Luke chapter eight. We mentioned in that Luke seven passage, a third sort of component, God's sovereignty, his power and compassion. And the third one is faith. What role does faith play in the miraculous or in healing. If we're holding high the reality of God's sovereignty, we're holding high that he's powerful and compassionate, how do we also hold in equal proportion the reality that scripture shows from beginning to end that faith plays a role in all of this? That's what we're gonna look at here in this final section of Luke chapter eight. As I read this passage, kind of keep that in your mind and look for, why, why would now be the time that we're going to talk about that faith component. If you've got it open there in front of you, I'm going to read starting in Luke chapter 8, verse 40. It says this. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then, a man named Jairus came. He was a leader of the synagogue. He fell down at Jesus' feet and pleaded with him to come to his house because he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. While he was going, that's Jesus, The crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. Instantly, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, don't be afraid. Only believe and she will be saved. After he came to the house, he let no one enter with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Everyone was crying and mourning for her, but he said, stop crying because she is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him because they knew she was dead. So he took her by the hand and called out, child, get up. Her spirit returned and she got up at once. Then he gave orders that she be given something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this morning and the chance to gather together and just to spend time holding high the truth of the gospel, to spend time worshiping, to spend time in communion, to spend time in your word. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here with us this morning. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would take the truth of your word 
and by your grace, be transformative as it is that we've seen throughout this chapter. God, we pray that as your people, we would have fertile soil in our hearts, God, and that as your word is pressed into our hearts by your Holy Spirit, it would do the transformative work that we see your word talk about. God, would we be a people who are transformed by your grace and your power according to your will through the work of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's where we're gonna land this morning. Faith is the conduit through which all of the graces of the gospel flow. Faith. That's what we're going to look at most closely this morning. How we're gonna do that is we're gonna take this passage and like we've done before and is helpful in the gospels, we're gonna kind of track our way through it based on the emotions and the reactions of the people that are present in the account. It's easy to take these gospel interactions and kind of leave them sterilized on the page. Instead, I just wanna bring forward the emotions. This is a desperate scene that Luke 8 is displaying for us. I want us to feel that. Then we're gonna see the results of what Jesus does and then we're gonna think about the gospel for a little bit. It's actually helpful in walking through the passage if we back up and we start where we left off last week. Jesus was on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. He went over there, cast what we're told is a legion of demons out of a man who had been living among the tombs that the text said was like out of his right mind. The town sees what Jesus has done recognizes the loss of like all the money that could have been made from this herd of pigs that rushed down a hill and drowned themselves. And we're told that they're gripped by great fear. They're angry. They tell Jesus to leave. Jesus gets in a boat and he leaves. And the juxtaposition is a little bit difficult to see because in English Bible translations, we get a separation in sections here. There was one account Most of the time in our quiet times or something, we would stop there and the next day or a week later in our case, we start reading the next account. But notice what happens. On one side of the lake, there's this group of townspeople who are angry and gripped by fear and they're demanding that Jesus leave. Verse 40, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. This is two totally different atmospheres on both sides of the lake. You get the sense on one side that it's like pitchforks and torches and angry people running Jesus out. And on the other side is like rejoicing in casseroles, welcoming Jesus in. And those two things right next to each other should highlight for us that there is a range of responses when it comes to Jesus Christ. Not everybody welcomes but not everybody rejects either. At the high point of Jesus's ministry, which is really where we are here, all the way up until his triumphal entry into Jerusalem where people are waving palm branches and shouting to him, Hosanna. They're literally worshiping him. There's this large crowd that surrounds Jesus and it is, it, it's like jubilant, it is tumultuous at times. It seems celebratory in different moments. It's angry at certain times. It's just like chaos surrounds Jesus's ministry at its high point here. And every time I read the like middle section of any of the gospels and I think about that scene, the picture I get in mind is the footage I've seen from when the Beatles came to America. 
and they touched down and it was like mostly, you know, teenage and young women just like clawing at security guards in order to get to the Beatles. The Rolling Stones magazine described the Beatles landing in New York for the very first time this way. As the flight landed at New York's John F. Kennedy Airport, the pilot relayed to the group that there was a crowd waiting. The Beatles were used to crowds. For more than a year in Britain, young people had been showing up at their shows, screaming. Yet as the plane neared the gate, those aboard grew confused by a massive sound. We could hear something, or we could hear this screaming, Cynthia Lennon said later. We thought it was the engines, but the screaming was out of the fans. As the Beatles disembarked, McCartney glimpsed the tumult and asked, who is this for? The Beatles stopped on the plane's stairway and took in the sight. 4,000 exhilarated young people waving jubilantly, amassed behind plate glass windows, hanging over airport terminal balconies, clustered atop buildings, holding large signs that welcomed the band as policemen formed lines to hold back the surging crowd. Tom Wolfe, who was covering the Beatles' arrival for the New York Herald Tribune, reported that some of the girls tried to throw themselves over a retaining wall. That sort of, like, chaos is the sense you get that surrounded Jesus. And what's amazing in all of that is that he is totally unfazed. He's not, like, swept up in it and carried off by the whims of the crowd, but he's also not totally rejecting those crowds. He's just calmly right in the middle of that sort of tumultuous scene all the time doing the will of the Father, doing what God had sent him here to do. And it's in the middle of that chaos that we're introduced in verse 41 to a man named Jairus. Again, feel the emotions of this. Jairus is this respected man. We're told that he's a leader in the synagogue and he's at his wit's end. He's at his his wit's end because we're told in verse 41, he's pleading with Jesus to come to his house because he had an only daughter about 12 years old and she was dying. Feel the emotion of that. It's falling down before Jesus, pleading. His only daughter and time is running out. It's desperate. That's the atmosphere that Luke zooms in on in the middle of all of the jubilation and all of the welcoming and all of the expectant waiting for Jesus to come back. Luke highlights this desperate man. I don't know if you've seen the movie John Q. It starts with Denzel Washington selling his truck. He's out in front of his house. He's got this like wad of cash from a guy who's buying his beat up pickup truck and he's counting all of the money when his phone rings. He answers the phone call. It's his wife from the hospital because their son has been in the hospital for quite some time and the doctors have decided there's nothing more that they can do for him. And the wife says, they're sending him home. And he says, no, no, there's there's no reason to send him home. I've got more cash. We can pay. And she says, no, they've decided that he can't be saved. There's nothing more they can do for him. And then she says, you better do something. And then the rest of the movie, John Q, is him holding a hospital hostage, which is not exactly this situation. But it's that level of desperation by Jairus. Time is running out for their daughter. You get the sense that they can do nothing more to help her. And somebody there has said, we've got to do something. And Jairus said, I've heard of this Jesus guy. And in his desperation, at the end of his rope, he goes to get Jesus, falls down in front of Jesus, begging him to come and help. Jesus decides to go to his house. And on the way to his house, there's this anonymous woman 
she's pushed into the middle of this crowd that we're told is crushing Jesus. And her situation is just as desperate. We're told that she's been bleeding for 12 years. That's as long as the little girl has been alive. It's a uterine sort of bleeding, most likely. We're told that she spent all of her money on doctors, but her condition hasn't gotten any better. In fact, Mark says it this way. A woman suffering from bleeding from 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Chronic illness creates a weight of emotion unlike almost anything else. To wake up day after day after day with a condition that's just not getting better. That's where this woman is. But a little bit of cultural context adds even another layer. In Numbers chapter 5, we're given a, a group of three different types of people who are ritually or ceremonially unclean. Lepers, so those with skin disease, anyone who has come into contact with a dead body, and the third one is anyone with a discharge. That's a sanitized way of describing this woman's condition. Now, in Luke chapter 5, there was a leper that Jesus touched, and the leper became clean rather than Jesus becoming unclean. In Luke chapter 7, there was a dead child on a uh, basically their day's version of a casket, and Jesus touched that. He didn't become unclean. He raised that child from the dead. Here's the third category. She's not supposed to be around people. She's not supposed to be able to worship. She's actually got to live outside of town. And in the middle of this crowd, she tries to be as anonymous as possible in order to touch Jesus. For 12 years, she's been an outcast, unable to interact with her family, unable to partake in worship with her community and her people, living somewhere else. And so she hears that Jesus is coming back and she decides literally, I'm willing to risk everything to get into this crowd and touch Jesus. She's desperate and she wants to be anonymous because shame and ridicule is the last thing she needs in this season of her life. And so in her desperation, she does what's totally unthinkable. She touches Jesus. And then Jesus does what is unthinkable to her. He stops and he wants to know who touched me. And everybody around there denies it. And Peter's like, I don't know, probably one of the groupies, Jesus. Like there are a lot of people here. They're crushing in on you. 15 people probably touched you. And Jesus says, no, someone touched me and power went out from me. And when the woman realizes she can't hide any longer, her desperation is now humiliation. She's gonna have to own it. And we're told she does what Jairus did. She falls down in front of Jesus and announces why it is that in her desperation, she has come to Jesus. And it's almost like you forget in reading that portion of the account that there's Jairus waiting his daughter dying while Jesus holds an investigation in the middle of this crowd. And as Jesus is announcing, daughter, your faith has saved you. Someone walks up from Jairus's house and says, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter died. Imagine Jairus's like anxiousness while Jesus is looking for the person who touched him, while he's talking to her. And then... When she gets healed, 
what he came to Jesus for, he sees happen to another person and someone arrives and says, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. The overwhelming mix of grief and anger that would happen within Jairus in that moment is unthinkable. In 2021, in an emergency room, this is a medical malpractice lawsuit waiting to happen. The triage nurse says, let's help the bleeder rather than the 12-year-old girl that's dying. Someone's getting sued. That's what's just taken place. And Jesus says, looks over at Jairus and says, don't be afraid. Only believe and she will be saved. You go over to the house. There's a group of people that are there. They're not worried anymore about her dying. They're mourning because she has died. Jesus says she's only asleep. Now they're sneering at Jesus. They're laughing like we know what a sleeping girl looks like. This isn't that. Jesus goes in, takes her by the hand, child, get up. Their mourning turns to rejoicing. So you take like a 17, maybe 18, 19 verse chunk if you go back into the last section and just kind of tick off the emotions. They're gripped by great fear and there's anger on one side of the lake that's met by joy and expectation. On the other side, there's a desperate man who becomes anxious. There's a desperate woman who becomes embarrassed. Now there's an angry man who's grieving. There's a mourning crowd who turns to sneering and then there's rejoicing. All of that happened to real people in a real interaction. And the whole story orbits on two phrases. All of Luke chapter eight has been drawing our attention to the transformative power of the word of God. And he speaks twice. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Don't be afraid. Only believe and she will be saved. Two components in both of those phrases. Faith and salvation. Those are the two things at play here. We're gonna deal with both of those, but I wanna start with the word saved. As we've worked our way through Luke, we've been intentional to talk directly about instances of healing and what that means in the life of a believer and in the life of the church today. And I wanna continue that, but I wanna make sure we get this account squarely in view. Often, particularly in churches with a theological bent or a general disposition such as ours, you'll see people take these healing passages and they'll kind of gloss over the physical aspect in order to talk about the spiritual aspect of these healings. That these healings represent for us this deeper spiritual healing that Jesus can do in the life of a person today. And that is absolutely true. We've wanted to go right at the physical part first because the physical part is also true. And I don't want us to just gloss over the fact that these are real people in the Gospels who really got healed because of the real power of a compassionate Savior who in his grace can heal. But there's a key word in this. Jesus does not announce that this woman, her faith can heal her. He announces that her faith has saved her. Jesus does not tell Jairus, only believe and your daughter will be healed. He says, only believe and your daughter will be saved. And so today I want us to talk about that deeper spiritual healing, what these passages do represent for us at a deeper level. That word saved in Greek is the word sozo, S-O-Z-O. It appears all throughout the New Testament and is translated as saved, delivered, preserved, kept, rescued, brought out safely. It appears in some very popular New Testament verses, such as Romans 10, 9. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and if you believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be sozo, saved. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name in heaven given to people by which we must be sozo, saved. Ephesians 2.8, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. In both interactions that take place in this one account, what does Jesus say? Not that their faith or belief will heal them, but that it will or that it has saved. And for that reason, I don't want us to talk only about the underlying picture that these healing accounts give us, but I do want us to bring that out, that Jesus can and does physically heal But importantly, he can and does and he longs to save. That's the great grace of the gospel. Again, these are real, actual physical healings. Physical healings that God can and does still have the power and the capability to do today. But those physical bodily healings point us to the reality that in Jesus, there is spiritual, eternal healing available. That healing is available by his grace, through his death, his resurrection, And the picture here and throughout the Bible is that the effective means of that healing work is Jesus's grace at work through his power and his compassion according to his will. But what does this passage show us? Received by faith. There's a third component at play in these instances. And faith is the conduit through which all the graces of the gospel flow. Throughout scripture, it's clear. And that's why we started where we did on these healing passages. That the effective means of our salvation, the effective means of God's healing is his grace acting upon us in a manner that is totally independent from what we do. Grace is the main thing. In fact, scripture makes it clear that it is even grace that awakens within us the faith that is necessary to receive his grace. That is a mystery that I cannot totally figure out. What's the timeline on all of that? Like we're told that dead people become alive thanks to the grace of God. And dead people cannot wake themselves up to the reality of God's grace. And so it is grace that stirs the faith within us that's necessary to receive the grace for salvation. I don't know how all that works. But scripture makes it clear that that is the way that this plays out. And so in this particular instance, it leads to a question. What kind of faith is required for this to happen. Like when the Bible talks about faith, what does that mean? I'm gonna give you sort of the historical theological answer to that. And historically, biblical faith has three components. Each of those components have Latin words attached to them. But at 12:16 on a Sunday morning afternoon, who wants Latin words? I'm just gonna give you my English translations. You want Latin words, I'll, I'll get you later. He's fifth grade. (laughs) I'm going to give you the English version of these. Biblical faith has three components. The first is intellectual. There's an understanding of the truths of the gospel. You can't put your faith in something you don't know. Our faith as followers of Jesus is in a person, Jesus Christ. Our faith is in a God that's personal, Yahweh. Our faith is in a historical event, the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And in order to have faith in those things, we have to know about them. 
Just take this particular passage. When you think about verse 40 with the crowd or verse 41 with Jairus, verse 43 with the woman, they know intellectually something about Jesus. They're not expectant for him unless they know something about him. They're not looking for help from him unless they know something about him. Obviously, they've heard some stuff about Jesus. Go back to last week's passage. The demons intellectually know some stuff about Jesus. I know who you are, Jesus, son of the most high God. Think about the disciples. They're continually learning and knowing Jesus more. That's why after he calms the storm, they look around and they say, who is this man? That's why Jesus a little bit later is gonna say, who do you say that I am? There's an intellectual component to faith, but it can't stop there. There's an affirmational component. And that would be a factual agreement with the truths of the gospel. Saying that the intellectual aspects are true. That's the next step from here's what I know about the claims of Christianity to I know that these claims are true. Who God says he is in scripture, true. What the Bible portrays Jesus to be, true. My need for a savior, true. Jesus as that only savior, true. The crucifixion, true. The resurrection, true. Now that doesn't mean that you need to be able to give the theology textbook answer or the seminary test answer to every theological fact, doctrine, or position. It doesn't mean that. But it means that we need to know and affirm the truth of the big rocks. Who Jesus is, what he came to do, why we need that, and how that finds its completion in him. Again, Think about Jairus and this woman. They've not only heard stuff about Jesus, they must at the very least be willing to agree that those things could be true. Jesus could heal my daughter. Jesus could stop my bleeding. I've heard that he can heal. I'm agreeing that it's true and I'm going there for help. They wouldn't be reaching out to touch him. They wouldn't be coming for help unless they agreed that what they've heard about him is true. Now, again, note, think about the demons from last week. They both know and agree on who Jesus is. The demons on the other side of the lake understood that Jesus could cast them into the abyss. They agreed that that is factually true and they begged that he send them into the pigs instead. So intellectual and affirmational truth can't be the end of the road. There's a third component and that is a personal aspect. Knowing and assenting is not enough. There's got to be complete reliance upon the truths of the gospel. The demons are not in that camp. What we see in Jairus and in this woman is a willingness to cast all of themselves upon the truth of who Jesus is and to cling to it and to rely upon it. That is deeply transformationally personal. Jairus is falling down before Jesus. The woman is falling down before Jesus. There's nothing else that can help me. There's nothing else that can save me. Jesus, it is you and you alone. Your mercy, your grace, your kindness, your power, your compassion. The demons don't do that. The townspeople didn't do that on the other side of the lake. The sneering, laughing people at the house don't start off that way. Jairus and the woman. And so 
What does Jesus do? What's the result of all of this? It's not just that he looks at the woman and says, you can be healed. It's not just that he looks at Jairus and says, your daughter can be healed. It's that he looks at them and says, believe, have faith, and you will be saved. What's the ultimate end result in both of these instances in this passage? The woman, Jairus and his family, the little girl, they ultimately get Jesus. That's what ultimately happens. Daughter, Jesus says to this woman, this woman he's never met before. Your faith has saved you. You've been brought into this family that the word of God is creating. That's what we've seen all throughout chapter eight. He goes into this young girl's room, takes her by the hand and says, child. And it's not just like child because that's what she is categorically. The sort of colloquial translation would be honey, darling, wake up. She's been saved. The woman has been saved. Don't be afraid. Go in peace. That's the result. There's healing available. And that physical healing happened. That physical resurrection happened. But Luke is highlighting the fact that these people get sozo, saved. And that salvation is this tender, intimate, personal interaction and belief in Jesus. Faith, complete reliance. And that faith gives us intimate relationship with Christ. I wanna give four of the gospel sort of graces we see in this passage. There are more of these. We could talk about any of the grace that the gospel works inside of us. We could talk about sanctification or the receiving of spiritual gifts. We could talk about Jesus's power to release us from sin, to comfort us in trial, the effectiveness of prayer. There's a lot of grace that comes with the gospel. I'm just gonna do the four that are readily apparent in the passage. The first is this, the grace of the gospel saves can't miss that. That grace is powerful and compassionate and effective, and it's only available in Jesus. It's a free gift that you do not have to earn or achieve, but it is received by faith. Scripture makes that clear. And that means that it can be received by grace this morning. If you've not received the grace of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, you can do that today. Don't be afraid. Only believe and you will be saved. Saves. But we also see that the grace of the gospel heals. And that grace is still at work today, physically and spiritually. According to the power and the compassion and the will of Jesus, God still heals. Now, what I'm not giving you this morning is a formula. I'm not saying that if you only have this much faith or it looks this particular way or that if you do A, B, C, and D in this particular order and use these particular words, then God will always heal. I'm not saying that. His grace, according to his will, by his power and his compassion. What I am saying is this. Scripture makes it clear that without faith, those things will certainly not happen. Now, does it mean that if you have faith or you just have enough faith, then they definitely will happen? No, 
because the will of God is this mystery. But what I do know is this, that there are times where a person believes, genuinely believes that God has the power to save and to heal and God does not heal. You still get Jesus in that scenario. We've talked about this over the course of these healing passages. You might not get the healing that you wanted. You get some other form of God's grace and in the receiving of that grace, you get Christ. And that is the great gift to all of us. It doesn't take away the pain of not receiving the healing. It doesn't take away the confusion of why God didn't choose to act in that particular fashion. It doesn't make walking through those seasons any easier. What we know for certain is that when God wills it, according to his grace, he has the power and the compassion to heal and to save, and faith is the means by which we receive. The third one is this, the grace of the gospel calms. Go in peace. Do not be afraid, Jesus says. That grace is still available to us today. As those who are followers of Jesus, Philippians 4, 6 is absolutely true. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's available for us in every situation all the time. We've got to be willing to receive that. What a wonderful grace that in our most difficult and trying moments, the grace of God would be available to calm us to steady us. We receive that by grace, through faith. Last, the grace of the gospel resurrects. This is what's coming for everyone who has received grace by faith for their salvation. Jesus' resurrection is a down payment of it. The resurrection accounts in the gospels are foreshadowings of it. The reality is coming. Every single person who has been saved by God's grace will be physically, bodily, resurrected. That's going to happen. And it's to be received by faith. We walk through this life with an understanding that these bodies are going to break down and at some point are going to fail us. And each and every one of us is going to die unless Jesus comes back before then. And once that happens, we will be resurrected by the power and compassion of Jesus Christ and we will spend eternity in glorified bodies where sin is no longer present and we're not subject to decay any longer and we will worship in the presence of Jesus for all of eternity. That reality is coming. And when we receive God's grace in the gospel, we receive that resurrection promise as well. Faith is the conduit through which all the graces of the gospel flow. I wanna close with this. Sometimes when it comes to any and all of the graces of the gospel, we need to examine whether or not we really believe. Do I know who Jesus is and what scripture says is true? Do I agree that those claims are true? Do I really believe that? Have I cast myself upon them in faith and belief? There are different sort of uh, theological dispositions and church sort of temperatures when it comes to the miraculous. There's the very charismatic on one side and the very much not charismatic on the other side. What you see in very charismatic churches is an absolute understanding that faith is the means by which you can receive the grace of the gospel, including the miraculous. Now, sometimes in those very charismatic places, faith can be held out almost as like, if you had faith, this would always happen. That's not true. 
Then there's the other side that says these miraculous things don't happen anymore as if God's power has somehow ceased to work in that way. The truth is somewhere in the middle that we recognize God's will and sovereignty, that he is still powerful and compassionate and that faith plays a role in all of this sort of equation. And that without faith, we can be sure that God won't do those things. And with faith, we can understand that by his power, by his compassion, according to his grace and his will, he can still act in those sorts of ways. We don't have to be as charismatic expressively to hold a firm belief to the fact that Jesus says, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, teeny tiny faith, you don't need a ton of it. You don't need to have enough of it. It's not that if you only had more, like in a quantitative sort of way, this would happen. No, it's that faith is a conduit through which these things take place. And we don't have to be the most expressively, our expressive people in worship in order to not lag behind in the faith that this is who Jesus is. This is what he says. And we can acknowledge the fact that he can still do everything that we see him do in the gospels according to his grace and his will by his power with his compassion. Amen? So I wanna challenge you with this. And I do this out of my own struggle with this. Sometimes in churches with our disposition and our theological bent, we hedge so hard on the side of God's will that what we're actually covering up is an uncertainty about whether he has the power. I don't know if that's you or not. Do you actually believe intellectually, affirmationally, personally, that this Jesus that's described in the gospels is the Jesus who has the power to heal and to save and to sanctify and to glorify and to release from sin and to do all that we see him doing? Do you or do you not? We need to hold high God's will in these things. We need to hold high his ability in these things. We need to hold high faith as an important component. We need to hold all of them in tension and let God be God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's worship together. Stand up. Let's sing.